0: Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast for the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. My name is Roger Hudson.
1: And my name is Nick Hanfield-Jones.
0: And we are here with Kenny Riley, a first-year master's student in the Department of History here at Western University. How are you doing, Kenny? I'm doing very well, thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show. So you are studying, uh, I think, a fairly niche area of history. What would you describe it as? Um, I would describe my area
2: as yeah, it is. It is definitely very niche. It's called environmental history.
0: Environmental history. Yeah. So you're specifically looking at a particular plant, I guess, that was uh, brought over a couple of hundred years ago?
2: Yeah, I'm looking at, I'm looking at attitudes towards um, a plant called kudzu, which is spelled K-U-D-Z-U. Kudzu. And it was introduced to the United States in 1876, and it was sold as an ornamental vine for a person's garden. They could grow it as shade. To, uh, or as, um, as shade from the sun or as little privacy from their neighbors. Okay, doke. So, uh can you explain what the yuzu sort of looks like? I'm trying to picture it in my head here. So it's um it's a so it's a vine and it has it off and each vine has uh, three broad leaves on it and it's and it's a very and it's a very bright green.
1: Bright green. Okay. Yeah. So, this would have been something that people would want to put on their
2: homes for a decorative thing then. Oh yeah, yes. Okay. And, and when, it grows, when it grows long enough, it has a, it has a really nice um, smell to it, a sort of sweet smell.
1: Mm-hmm. So we're going to get into the details about how this plant came to North America and, and how that'll happen. But first, I'm sort of interested, like, how did you get
2: interested in this area, this very niche area? Yeah. So I was taking an undergraduate course at Mount Royal in environmental history, and we had to write about an environmental issue from a historical from a historical perspective and one of the and I was also taking a course on immigration and racism in Canadian history and I was looking for a way to try and combine re- histories of immigration with an environmental history so I found this I was looking up environmental issues specifically invasive species and I I found I saw the name kudzu and I thought that's that really stands out, mm-hmm. and then I just fell down the rabbit hole.
0: Very interesting. So I guess uh, there's a lot of, um, I guess agriculture and uh, technology and industry that's tied in with immigration o- over the past several hundred years, if not over all of human history, I'd imagine.
2: Yeah, yeah, and around and like I said, and um the the study, the uh, the introduction, uh, like especially in the early 20th century, the mass immigration. Of people coming to America, was um, introduced these terms like immigrant, foreigner,
0: alien, uh, which eventually
2: which then became transplanted onto plants and animals.
0: That also accompanied these immigrants or yeah. aliens coming into the nation.
2: Yes. Yeah, so, and then you see in a lot of descriptions around around, around non native plants and animals, um, the same way, being them being described the same way as 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 people. And so sometimes you get very prejudiced descriptions of animals and plants. And to give you an example, there was um, in the American South at one point there was pa- in the early twentieth century, there was panics around um, old around um, old stock pigs dying out and foreign breeds taking over. Interesting. And so you saw, saw farmers wanted to breed British British style pigs because they were believed to be the superior, genetically
0: pond. superior. Uh, strain, or,
2: yeah, yeah, and they would also, and there was also there was also gender. They would try to breed the most masculine pigs. Really, M- ideas of like masculine, mm-hmm. uh, masculine pigs with feminine sows.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow. So okay, I'm I'm sort of interested there. So these animals and plants, did they come over like purposefully, or did they come over accidentally? Just you know, there happened to be you know. A stray seed on the
2: boat, kind of thing. It's it's a little bit of both. Okay, but where kudzu came in was part of the um, was part of these what, the, what were called acc- acclamation societies. So these were groups, these were societies in London, in England, um, France, New Zealand, that would introduce um, mainly European plants to parts of uh, Africa and Asia, places that were being colonized, as a way. And this, if these species were able to uh, to adapt to the environment, it was seen as proof that that white people could colonize these areas, and then they could, and then they, and then in their minds, they would introduce, they would bring back plants and animals from these places to like England, France,
0: America, as proof of conquests or trophies. Yeah. Wow, that is fascinating. So I guess I guess prior to immigration or th- this boom in uh, immigration in the 20th century, like you were saying, I would imagine that a lot of areas on the planet looked a lot different because they had different agriculture or uh, different kinds of uh, structures and, and uh, things like that.
2: Yeah, absol- absolutely. I mean, in, Nor- in, North Amer- in North America, North American history, there is the, um, the Colombian exchange, which is like the introduction of cattle and pigs and horses to North America. Uh, and the introduction of mass agriculture to um, to North America specifically, which is which is an area which is an area I'm more I'm more comfortable with. Yeah. Um, and so, and with the introduction of agriculture, it created the possibility of weeds, because a weed is often described as a plant that's out of place. And in, when you create in agriculture, you create this oversimplified um, ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And so if you have, if you grow, like, say, a bunch of potatoes, and say there's a corn that's growing in your field of potatoes, it might become seen as a weed,
0: as something that has to be eradicated. Because it's not something that you intended to be there, it's not something that you want there in the first place, but because it sprouted up when it's not supposed to, it's seen as a pest. Yes, yeah. Hmm.
1: So if North America, like, did not have agriculture before,
2: like, how did— Oh, it did have— Okay. So, sorry, it did have agriculture. What I'm saying, but like I'm saying that animals such as like cattle, horses, oh, okay. that they were introduced, right? And there were so there were societies of, of Aboriginals that did practice agriculture, um, but due to like a volcanic eruption in twelve year twelve fifteen, I believe, it it created it um, cooled down the Earth's temperature, blocking the sun, and as a result. Um aboriginals are, many Aboriginals were forced to adopt a more um nomadic mm-hmm. lifestyle so so then you get the introduction of
1: like different forms of agriculture, I guess mm-hmm. and then what happens next to the sort of like what happens when you introduce like totally different um
2: species of plants, for example um well a, as a result they end up uh, they end up crowding out other other spe- other native species right and again with these oversimplifying when you create these, these agri- this these massive sites of agriculture you end up creating more possibilities for diseases breaking out and then as agriculture becomes more and more industrialized it's you know the the small farmer ends up ends up not being able to make
0: as much money it becomes more for sure corporati- corporatized I, I guess i'd also imagine that Um, the ecosystem that's normally in any environment can be taken over by things that are, uh, I guess, better at adapting to every different ecosystem and uh, they can misplace or uh, disrupt the normal ecosystem in a way that's probably not good for people or animals or any kind of uh, living creature. Yeah,
2: because as a result, again, as agriculture becomes bigger, as there's more populations to feed, there's more of a reliance on, um, on pesticides, um, herbicides. The most infamous example perhaps is DDT, which was a pesticide that was used in 1950s, 1960s, and re- which was later linked to um, increases of, of cancer diagnosis, especially for people that, would be, that were working in fields that were being sprayed with DDT while working on the fields, as well as mutations in plants and
0: animals. I see. Okay, so so then I guess uh, in terms of kudzu, w- w- what was the because uh, c- that's the plant that you're studying? Yes. It, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was adapted or it was brought over, uh, acclimatized yeah. uh, from Japan into yes. North America. Yeah,
2: it was brought over. Yeah, brought over from Japan to like North America as a result of these acclimation societies, and then in the 1930s. 1940s, when the American South is dealing with problems of soil erosion due to, like, excessive tobacco and cotton farming. Someone, uh, the government, because the American government being devoted to um, con- new conservation and preservation measures for the environment, got the idea to introduce this kudzu plant to the region because it, grow- it grows on various types of soil, holds them together. And the idea was that if these, if these cotton or tobacco farmers had a bit of kudzu on their farm, their cattle or their, and their other livestock could graze on it. Oh, and I because see. kudzu grows so quickly, it would grow back. And so they would save the farmer in the long run time because they wouldn't have to constantly be buying new food to Absolutely. feed their
0: livestock. And it would also save them money in the long run. Not having to replenish it all the time. And I guess land as well because if it, how fast does it regrow? You said it regrows. It, it
2: can grow. Well, it can grow uninterrupted
0: a foot a day. A foot a day? Yes, a foot a day. Wow. How could it possibly have uh, that much energy to to produce that um, much plant? Well, it's
2: it's a nitrogen fix it's a nitrogen plant. It's rich in nitrogen and Okay. that and they actually I actually don't know much about why it grows so why it grows a foot a day. But again, it grows in humid climates and if there's nothing to hold if there's nothing to hold it back, it can grow a foot a day.
0: That's incredible and, and I guess where it was brought to in in the southern areas of this of the United States So like
2: states like Georgia and Mississippi like areas that are very humid have humid climates
0: and also had cotton and tobacco farms I would imagine.
1: yeah. So is this you know related to sort of the concept of crop rotation like were these farmers just over relying on tobacco, etc to the point that their soil just looked or the soil just became, unnourished. Yeah. And then, yeah. So their, their idea was to like nourish the soil via this, uh, you know, foreign plant. Uh,
2: what happened then? Like, did the soil become better? Yeah, it did. It did. It did help. It did help conserve soil and it, and it did wor- and it worked for farmers. It helped save time, it saved money and it was successful for the most part. The problem is is that you always have to, you have to have something to keep the plant in check from having it grow a foot, from keeping it from growing a foot a day, because it will overtake trees and plants and depriving them of sunlight. and de- destroy the normal ecosystem. Yeah. And there's, uh, after World War II, there's changes to the agricultural agricultural economy, okay. in the southeast. Um, these states, they switch from cotton and tobacco farming to lumber farming, especially after World War II, um, to build, building houses and that. Um, right, yeah. And then, that makes sense. So they start leaving behind their cotton farms, which have, which have growths of kudzu. They either switch to lumber farming or they just move to cities.
0: But they left the kudzu yeah.
2: regardless. And so when you leave kudzu alone, it starts, grow, it starts overtaking trees and plants and it, it now occupies over a million acres
0: in um in the in the American South a million acres yeah. so put that in perspective how, how big would that actually be is that like half a state or? oh
2: it occupies it's occupies every county in the state of Georgia and most most counties in the southeastern states have kudzu wow and it's earned the it's earned the nickname the vine that ate the south
1: so is this just like Barren wasteland now of kudzu, like no more trees left, and so <laughs>
2: there are there are trees and pla- <laughs> there are trees and plants um, that are filled with kudzu. But this is the re- this is what makes it really interesting. The plant, it's uh, it's almost become a cultural icon of the South. In the state of Georgia, there are there are cities, um, well not cities, there are streets, and even like stores that are named after kudzu. When an artist wants to depict an authentic southern landscape, they will often use kudzu. They picked
0: it. Even though that this authenticity for the kudzu, it, it only really took over when it when it was brought over in 1876. Exactly. Wow. <laughs> so it's become such a part of the culture. Yeah.
1: But tell me about that. So, like, you know, the... You know, it seems like on the one hand, um, there's a, like a positive association with it. You know, people are depicting it and such. But at the same time, you have depictions like the vine that ate the South. is a more negative connotation. So how do people sort of see it now, like culturally? And how, you know, how did that shift um, occur from how they originally thought about it?
2: Yeah. Like, so current attitudes towards it, it's like people are trying, it's like this balancing act. Between see between invasive pest on one hand, and then a cultural icon of the American South, on the other hand, and they're still and the states they still struggle with kudzu, and, and and as far as attitudes towards it, there are people that believe that even the label invasive is inaccurate. It's some people they th- believe that um, that kudzu is actually a useful plant. It depends on how we view it. So people have tried making baskets. Out of kudzu, they've tried making medicine. So they ground it up into powder, and for people to consume it, helped them with alcoholism. Really? Yeah. And the the idea is, if you if you drink kudzu medicine, it makes you less thirsty. And this is like
0: Western medicine, is it or is it yeah. pseudoscience?
2: Um, it's based off. So they're basing it off of like beliefs in in Japan that people would would would, would take it. And as use it as medicine, and but there has been there has been research conducted onto kudzu, in the night especially in the nineteen seventies nineteen eighties using kudzu as an alternative source of fuel or a fiber, and these people they found promising results, but. They couldn't get grant money because there's still a stigma attached to the plant. Don't? We all know that. <laughs> yeah, we all know that struggle.
0: Yeah. But essentially, it, so it has all of these these huge uses, potentially, if, if enough grant money were, were allocated towards it. But you're also saying that a lot of these states are struggling, quote unquote, with it. How would you say the, the struggle like what is the struggle just that it's over invading other species
2: so m- more, even more than that i was looking my undergrad thesis was focused on kudzu in atlanta specifically okay, from 19 got... late 1970s early 1990s atlanta georgia and there was actually issues with corpses being um this lost in growth of kudzu lost being like, yeah. a questionable term to use yeah. to describe that um so people there was um, corpses that would be... Do- people were removing kudzu they would find corpses of people that had either been murdered or had died
1: in them. Dang.
2: And even um there was even reports of like uh there's even reports from people claiming that the, the, there's little sensational like stories of criminals hiding in groves of kudzu <laughs> waiting to jump out at people walking across the streets, often terrorizing old old women. Wow. And there was also there was even a kudzu village in Atlanta. In the late nineteen eighties, early nineteen nineties, this was a um, a homeless community that had been living underneath growths of kudzu for about th- for three or four years. Wow, what happened to them? Uh, they they were forced to to move because the plate the, where they were it was right beside a, um, I think it was it was a, a building where the where the the, the Democrats the American Democrats sure. okay. were having a. A conference at or a meeting. So they
0: discovered that there was all of and these. They thought there. that like an
2: image of homeless people beside a government meeting would would be would would be bad PR. Not the brightest. So they, so they would move. So they moved the homeless people to another area filled with kudzu. And these homeless people, they would have be you of know, like, of Vietnam War veterans, um,
0: LGBTQ members, and various various other groups. It's very sad how. You know these and in, these individuals end up being the ones misplaced
2: but. yeah and so like my project my thesis was talking about how like attempts to try and improve Atlanta's image of if it trying to promote it as a progressive city how it was intertwined with kudzu removal and how like these stories of like corpses being discovered in kudzu or you know drug users and homeless homeless communities influence
0: perspectives towards the plant so you've brought up a lot about how it's the plant that took over the south or plant that ate the south and that a lot of southern states are heavily covered in this kudzu. Is it specifically isolated to the south or is there any gradient to, to oh, the north? No,
2: no, it's not isolated to the south. In fact, in 2009, there was um, a whole bunch of kudzu spotted on Lake Erie near uh, Leamington, Ontario. Oh, that's oh just even a, as
1: far as Canada? Yeah. Okay. And, and it's just a couple kilometers away.
2: And so science ecologists in Canada were very shocked and they were learning that, that this plant, which is the vine that ate the south, had been spotted in the north in Canada. Oh, no. But <laughs> now, I did some research. I was looking at newspapers in New York, especially in the 1950s, and I found reports of people growing kudzu in New York in the 1950s of this plant surviving winter.
0: Outdoors? Yeah. Wow. Resilient. Yeah,
2: I found there was um, this person, Elaine Jones. I think her name was. She'd grown um, ten to t- ten, no, fifteen to twenty kudzu plants in 1931 in an area in New York, and then in 1951 it had grown a thousandfold. This plant is just not giving up. But yet, it's not called the vine that ate the North.
1: Yeah. So how do? Uh, how is the? Because it's I find sort of interesting because, in the South, you know you see it as, like, the invader because it comes from somewhere else. Whereas maybe in the north, it's coming from the south, which is in the same country. So how uh, do the north and south sort of view
2: it? Is there a difference there? I think, yeah, there is a difference. Whereas in the south, when it became a problem, people would often um, racialize the plant. They would talk about it as a Japanese plant, and they would talk about it, like, using terms like sweeping oriental, Mm. uh, a floral migrant Okay. Another language communicating the fact that it's like communicating the idea that it's an, an immigrant and that right. they're playing into prejudices mm-hmm. against Japanese people and Japanese Americans. And so in in the northern states and in, and in Canada too, there's, there's this so it's both it's this racial it's seen as a racial threat, but it's also seen as a regional threat because it's because Kudzu's been seen as being a southern plant for so long it becomes framed as like a southern invader.
1: Right. So some of that old, like, north-south stuff comes up. Yeah. yeah.
2: And I found a news article that I was talking about Kudzu being spotted on Trump, around Trump Tower in New York <laughs> in 1999. Nice. And this person talking about it said, like, this is proof that the south will rise again.
0: Oh, and my soon New God. And soon
2: New York's weather will become Atlanta's oh weather. Oh,
1: my God. <laughs>
0: It's so, it's so interesting, I think, how this bad image follows kudzu wherever it goes. It's always an invader. Right? Yeah. It just thrives but actually, how wherever it, it goes. How is
2: it viewed in Japan? In Japan, because it, well, it was introduced from China to Japan okay. like over a thousand years okay. ago. But it it didn't become an invasive species mm. in Japan. But there are reports of Japanese tourists when they come to states like Georgia and Mississippi and they see kudzu growing everywhere. They get really excited. They're like, wow, you know, wow these Americans, they're... Like they're growing, so they have so much kudzu growing, and then like Ameri- and Americans in these states are confused. Like what? Like this is this is a this is a pest to us. Like this this is an invasive. This yeah. is an invasive
0: species. It should be eradicated. But because it doesn't have that image over in Japan or overseas, I guess it's seen as a sign of home and and a and a good sign. Mm-hmm. Interesting.
1: So I'm sort of interested about how you have learned about all this. Like, what is your like? method to learn about all this, like <laughs> archives and stuff?
2: Yeah, archives. Uh, I've always joked that like historians don't, we don't really have like a methodology right. like most scientists, yeah. like, like other sciences, we just reread read the things, mm-hmm. we think about the things, and then we write about the things. <laughs> so I was looking in archives, a lot of, mainly ar- online archives, so I would go on newspapers, newspaper databases and keyword search kudzu and look for mentions right. of this plant. And then I would go on government websites and Look up kudzu and mm-hmm. see if it, what see how they've talked about this plant, if at all.
1: Right, that is inc- sounds incredibly like exhaustive what you're doing. How do you uh, manage to compile all these
2: different stories together? Whew. Well, that, I'm am am asking myself I ask myself that <laughs> sure. question every day. Um, <laughs> and then there's so because there's so much. That's one of one of the difficulties we historians mm-hmm. have is refine all these sources then. It's like, okay, now we have to tell a story mm-hmm. about this. Um, I'm still working it out with, with my current thesis. But, uh, I actually want to ask about that. So you
1: have, uh, you're in your first year of master, yeah. so that means that you have, uh, you know, a year and a bit to go, a year and five months or whatever. Um, what is, but it sounds like you've done an incredible amount already. So what is your sort of plan, and, and, and what specifically are you going to write about for your thesis? Yeah,
2: so... You can only do so much keyword searching right. for so long <laughs> <laughs> online. So I want to visit archive, City of Toronto archives. Okay. And I want to visit um, archives in Ottawa, particularly around agriculture, because I want to find more comprehensive data on kudzu spread up north and looking at strategies that have been taken to try and either control its growth, eradicate it, or even attempts to try and live with it, because you can buy you can buy kudzu in Toronto in um, farmers markets. You can get like kudzu powder, used as, as medicine. Mm-hmm. S-
0: so you're you're trying, I guess, to piece together more from a cultural perspective how it's been dealt with, what its positives are, and if it even needs to be dealt with uh, in the same way as it was viewed in the south, uh, in terms of the north.
2: Yeah, yeah. My my project is going to aim at it's aiming kind of like what it like why this. Yeah, why is this plant seen as being southern but not as northern, despite having an equally long history yeah. in the north. And so I'm gonna, and so like I'm really interested in in like how ideas of what it means to be northern or ideas of what it means to be southern have influenced ideas towards what quote belongs in the north and what belongs belongs in the south. And so like my so my project's like it's talking about kudzu up north and what it means to be northern, what it means to be southern, because which I think is really per- really important for us even here in Canada, because we we talk about how in our it's even in our national anthem the true north strong and free, but most of us live in the <sighs> southern parts yeah. of Canada. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> so it's so interesting. I think that, yeah. that on top of all of the benefits we, you've already spoken about, on top of kudzu, you're also now looking at all of these different cultural differences through the lens of kudzu in order to reach these uh, conclusions. I think that's so fascinating. Yeah. So we have
1: just a few more minutes here. I'm sort of just, you know, a few final questions. What are you,
2: what are you planning to sort of do next with this? One of my professors told me that there's a book in here somewhere. So I want, once I get this thesis completed, who knows, maybe I'll, maybe I'll go all the way to do the PhD and mm-hmm. write a book very
0: cool. in the north. And what are the options uh, for a historian who has a PhD in terms of um, jobs afterwards? <laughs> for the, in the history
2: department, uh the job market's not doing too well. Sure. Here. Um but you know, but there's it's always good to have it's always good to have a backup plan, but I think the environment, it's a topic that's only going to become more and more that's true. relevant. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, I think there I think there's there's plenty of backup plans. Yeah for if, if, if,
0: if plan A doesn't work out. Keeping the options open, that's never a bad idea. Well, thank you very, very much, uh, Kenny, for being on the show. We really appreciate uh, all the knowledge you've just bestowed on us. And potentially, maybe when you finish your master's or move on to the PhD, you can get us up to speed on all of the new information you've come up with uh, (laughs) in that time. Uh, So this has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. If you'd like to be involved in the show or get in touch with us at all, you can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at GradCast Radio. And if you'd like to listen to us, we're on CHRW ninety-four point nine every Tuesday at six p.m. Listen to us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And Kenny, if anyone wants to follow you on social media or get in contact with you, how can they do that?
2: Yeah, so I'm on Twitter as um, K capital K Riley, sixteen, on Twitter. Um, And then my email address is k r
0: e i. I was your host today, Roger Hudson, co-host Nicholas Hanfield-Jones, and our guest today with was Kenny Riley. On the mic for producer was Gregory.
1: Thank you and have a great evening.